please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And I'll be reading uh, two verses from Romans 3, 23 and 24, and then skipping down to Romans 4, 1 through 8. This is word, God's word. It is his perfect, infallible word. And we know that God has given us his word uh, that we might know him and that we might love him and that we might experience his love for us. This is God's word. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 4, 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let us pray. Our Father, as we turn to consider the heart of the gospel, that you have saved us by grace through faith, only by the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, may these truths sink into our hearts and comfort us and direct us in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, perhaps you remember your first job. Uh, think back to the first paycheck that you received as a child and how proud you were. See, work is a very significant part of life. And there is pride in earning money by your own hand. There is pride in buying something by the sweat of your brow. Well, it's called pride of ownership. It comes from work. Now let's think along a slightly different line. Perhaps you remember some of your favorite birthday presents. And I, I suspect the children in here love birthday presents and uh, Christmas presents as well. <clears throat> now, if you think about it, a birthday present, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a present, but it's not quite freely given, is it? I mean, it, it's your birthday. You're supposed to uh, receive a present. And so your birthday places a certain duty on the... Uh, well, on your parents and uh, friends and, well, your grandma and grandpa <laughs> to, uh, to give you presents uh, for your birthday and for Christmas. 
But sometimes, as a surprise, we receive a gift that is so extravagant, that is so unexpected, that you know it is completely, freely, and unmerited. It is given out of love. You know that it comes from the heart of the giver. You know, sometimes I, I talk to uh, young men getting married, and uh, I, I have various counsel, and one of the things that I tell uh, young men, I say, you know, of course, you have to give flowers at anniversaries and uh, at uh, Valentine's Day and those special occasions. But the most important flowers you will give your wife are those flowers that show up, well, for no occasion at all. And they show up just because I love you. Now, as an aside, uh, just because flowers uh, need to be given in a public manner. Uh, this is a little sidetrack, but uh, why? Because uh, then somebody asks your wife, well, what are those flowers for? Well, they're just because he loves me. And uh, so sometimes there are gifts that we know are from the heart and out of love. You see, in our personal lives, we understand the contrast between a gift given and a wage earned. We understand that one comes from duty. It is earned. And one comes from love. It is given. And we understand the pride of ownership that comes with earning a wage. And we understand the thankfulness that comes with receiving a gift. We understand debt and duty. You know, we... We wouldn't expect to be paid if we didn't work. And if we do work, we expect to be paid because the debt is incurred. And we know that a gift given without cause, without obligation, is freely given. But somehow, when it comes to God, when it comes to salvation, which is totally unmerited on our part, coming entirely from God's free grace, motivated entirely by his love and his mercy. When it comes to God, somehow the difference between a wage earned and a gift given is often lost. Somehow mankind always feels compelled to justify himself, to earn his place before God. And, and I suspect that you know the reason just as, as I do. You have felt it in your own heart, just as I have. The reason is guilt. You see, it is hard to assuage a guilty conscience with a gift given. And, you know, if, uh, if someone gives us, if we have harmed someone, and they give us a gift, well, that sometimes makes it even worse. It brings, the, it brings out the guilt. The shame of a guilty conscience demands that we earn our way out. You see, that's how shame works. And this is the plight of sinful human beings before a holy God. We have rebelled against God. 
We have violated his commands. We have offended him. And we, as fallen men and women, have no way out. We cannot earn anything in God's sight. And yet, a guilty conscience demands that we must somehow cover our guilt by wage earned. Now, I say this because you need to have fixed in your mind and in your heart the difference between a gift given and a wage earned. You need to have fixed and permanent in your heart what is owed and what is freely given because the gospel is freely given out of God's love and grace. And the whole world wants to take that away from you. Every man-made religious-ism out there is built on the principle of a wage earned. And the result is always bondage. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, New Age-ism, modern-ism, Armenian-ism, legal-ism, a wage earned. But in Christ, you have been saved by grace. You have been justified by grace. You have been adopted as God's own child by grace. You are being sanctified by grace. And someday, you will be glorified into the very presence of God by grace. God himself will bring you safely home. Now, the, the context of Romans 4 is Romans 3. And that's why I read those couple verses. Uh, Paul declares that all mankind are under the same curse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then comes these wonderful words, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. See, we are justified freely, freely, freely by his grace. So the question is, how can you and I, as sinful creatures, be restored to a holy God? And this passage before us tells us that Abraham, that David, and that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we will look at uh, these three aspects of salvation, grace, faith, and Christ. And so firstly, we consider grace. Now, let me, let me read from verses 4 and 5 again so that we can get a sense for the structure of Paul's argument. Verse 4. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. <clears throat> and so we see the structure. To him who works, wages are given as debt. That is, work creates a debt, and so wages are given to fulfill that debt. It is right that wages are paid for work. But then it says, not counted as grace. And this tells us that there is something that does not correspond to debt. It is grace. Grace is something not of work, not of debt, not of wages. And to complete the contrast between grace and work in verse 5, 
He says, but to him who does not work. Now, that's the one who is under grace. To him who does not work, but rather than work, believes on him who justifies the ungodly. So the one who does not work does something else. He believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. And so thus the outcome of faith in the one who justifies the ungodly is righteousness. And so we notice here that there is there is no middle ground. If you're in the realm of work, you're in the realm of work. If you're in the realm of grace, then you're in the realm of grace. And the two do not cross. And so we ask, what precisely is grace? Now, in, in Scripture, uh, grace is a technical term. And by that I mean that, well, I have uh, Greek and Hebrew lexicons, and I can look up uh, grace, and I can look up well, the Hebrew word ken. I can look up popular usage uh, of the Greek word for grace or the Hebrew word for grace. But that's not where I go to learn what grace is. I go right here to see how does the Bible define grace. And so following Paul's lead, we're going to go to the Old Testament and ask, what is grace? Consider Joseph in Egypt during the seven years of drought. The people of Egypt were starving. They had nothing left to pay for grain, but without grain, they would die. They had no choice but to ask for mercy. They cast their very lives upon Joseph and asked that they might find grace in his sight. Genesis 47, 25. And they said, thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord. See, Joseph had no obligation, but he showed grace. And we notice the word in here. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord. And these words are repeated uh, concerning grace throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we remember Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see that grace is found. It is not due. It is not earned. It is found. We see that grace is found in the sight of the giver. And this tells us that grace exists in the giver and not in the receiver. Grace results in a gift to someone in need. You see, these people would die without grain. The gift is not grace, but is given out of grace. Or if we jump ahead a little bit, we can consider uh, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Ruth as a destitute widow who came from Moab to Israel, knew that she would have to depend upon grace if she and Naomi were to survive. And so she says in Ruth 2.2, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find grace. 
And it says that Ruth just happened upon the field of Boaz. And it says she found grace in the sight of Boaz. And so Boaz protected her. Uh, Boaz gave her extra grain for her and Naomi to live and survive. Now the Hebrew word hen, grace, is used of God himself more than any other place in the Bible in Exodus 33 and 34. And it is precisely here that we see God's grace on full display. At Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain. Aaron had molded a golden calf for the people. The people had bowed down to worship it. And they even said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Now, that's quite an affront to say, this golden calf, this is the God that brought us out. Not uh, the God that led us by the pillar of fire the pillar of smoke, the living God. They had grumbled every step of the way, and now they had completely rejected the Lord for an idol. And in Exodus 33, verse 3, God gives the terrible judgment. I will not go up amongst you. God said, if I go up amongst you, I'm going to destroy you. Moses can call on nothing else, and so he calls on grace. In 33, verse 13, Moses says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And by grace, God answered, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And a few verses later, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So you notice that every time grace is used, it's associated with grace is found in the sight of the giver. Moses and the people of Israel found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, this was um, clearly the low point in the life of Israel. And it was precisely at this point that they had their greatest need and that they were in need of grace. And so it was especially at this point, at the low point, that they found grace in the eyes of God. You see, here's the point. God had no obligation to save Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. It was not for anything in the people themselves, but because God's covenant love that he showed grace. Now, let let me just summarize grace here. Grace is not given out of duty or obligation. Grace is found. It's not earned. It's freely given. 
Grace exists entirely in the heart of the giver. Grace is found in the eyes of the Lord. Grace always results in a saving gift or action. Uh, The gift is not grace. Grace is not the gift, but the gift is given out of grace. Grace is given only to one in desperate need who cannot help themselves. See, Ruth does not need grace married to Boaz. She finds grace in the eyes of Boaz when she is a destitute widow in need of grain even to survive. Israel receives grace at the moment of their greatest sin. Where there is no need, there is no grace. Where there is an ability to save oneself, there is no grace. You know, you have heard uh, grace described as unmerited favor. And it is that. But it's not just any unmerited favor. It is unmerited favor that is given out of the heart of the giver to one who is in desperate need, who cannot save themselves. And so we need to see the fullness of what grace is if we are to see the fullness of the gospel. And we see one other thing here. Specifically, God's grace is expressed in covenant. Because by covenant, God obligates himself to the salvation of his people. You see, grace is freely given. There's no obligation in grace. It's given out of God's heart. But God wants us to know that he does not change. God wants us to know that his grace is the same from age to age. He wants us to know that his grace is sovereignly given and sovereignly maintained. And so by covenant, God creates a bond between himself and his people. And so he tells us that we live under the covenant of grace. Now, why go to such lengths to look through here to see what is it precisely that grace is. Well, it is because the gift that God gives by grace is salvation. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And notice how that states it. The grace of God that brings, that is the gift given out of grace, That brings salvation. Think about our natural condition. Born in sin. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. We are dead in our sin and trespasses. We cannot help ourselves. We are in need of gospel grace. We are in need of the gift that God gives out of grace which is salvation for our very souls. And so when you face the reality of sin and the corruption of your heart, you need to know that grace comes only to those in desperate need, that it comes to those who cannot help themselves, that it comes entirely from God himself. Romans 5.20 says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded 
much more. You see, if we get grace right, if we understand the depth and the goodness of God's grace, if we know that it comes entirely from God, entirely out of love, and if we understand that we are utterly lost without grace, then all of God's saving works, all of his eternal plan of salvation falls into place. Grace. We are saved by grace. Now, secondly, we see here that salvation is by faith alone. And if we look back at verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. And so we see that faith corresponds to grace. The one who does not work, believes. Romans 4.16, therefore, it, that is salvation, is of faith that it might be according to grace. And so we see that there is a direct connection, a direct tie between grace and faith. Faith receives grace as a free gift. If salvation was not by faith, it could not be by grace. Only faith receives what is freely given. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the Bible is very precise in its language. It says that you are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. And then it says through faith. That is, through the means of Faith receiving grace. Now Paul gives us an example to illustrate in the life of Abraham. In Romans 4.1 it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? That is, what has Abraham found within himself? By his own works, was Abraham just before God and himself? And Paul answers in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. You see, if, if, if Abraham, and I think this just uh, ran out of battery, so uh, raise your hand if I'm not projecting uh, enough for you. If Abraham had righteousness within himself, then Paul says, he has a boast before God. And literally the Greek means he is in possession of a boast. And, you know, Paul says it in this way. In order to clarify the argument, it's kind of like pushing a, a logical argument to its uh, ad absurdum extreme. You know, it's one thing to be, uh, to be basically a good person. But if you are righteousness within yourself, such that you have a boast before God, that is an entirely different manner. And so Paul stops right here at the end of verse 5, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2, and he says, but not before God. It is impossible that any sinful creature could have a boast before God. 
Now we need to stop and consider here what this passage says about our relationship to God. You see, God made us for a relationship with Him. That is our ultimate destiny. That is the great good in this life, is to know God and to love Him. To bring glory to Him. And I hope you see that a relationship built upon grace is the only kind of right relationship with God. Only resting in grace can we be thankful. Only in grace can our love for God flourish. And I hope you see how fundamentally salvation is taken away by personal righteousness. Salvation by works transforms our relationship to God. You see, work creates a debt. We cannot presume to achieve righteousness on our own by any kind of work unless we also presume to acquire a boast before God, unless we put God in debt to us. And think about the difference of of a relationship. Think about what we said at the beginning. Love and thankfulness come from a gift given. Debt and duty come from work and wages. We do not want to be in a relationship with God where we have put God in our debt by our own work. It's incompatible with the relationship of love. And God has said our highest good is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. See, God has designed us to be entirely dependent upon Him. This is the realm of grace. And so it says, Paul says in the next verse of Abraham, and he's quoting from Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith was accounted as righteousness. It wasn't his works, it was his faith. And the word the word accounted, and it shows up multiple times in this passage. It's uh, sometimes translated imputed, sometimes translated count accounting. It, it means that uh, here, here's, uh, here's your name. It means that God accounts the righteousness of Christ to you. He counts it as belonging to you. And in the parallel verse in Romans uh, uh, in 4 uh, verse 8, It says that he does not account your sins. And so here's your sins. God has taken those out. He doesn't account them to you. And by faith, he rather accounts Christ's righteousness to you. He imputes Christ's righteousness to you. And perhaps you've been in a courtroom and you've heard the judge pronounce the verdict guilty, which means condemned. Innocent, which means justified. So condemned and justified are opposites. They are proclamations of God. 
Now we need to see what a beautiful picture is in this passage of faith. Notice it says, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. See, in other words, the one who believes is still ungodly. Even when he believes. The point is that faith is not a righteous act deserving of anything from the Lord. You know, especially in the, in the modern church, um, faith can sometimes be seen as a work. As though, okay, so you, you couldn't keep the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Okay, now I'm just going to give you one, one command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if, if that's true, then we're right back in the realm of work and wages. And we can't keep that command any better than we could keep the ten. Or Adam could keep his one. He, unfortunately, faith is full of doubts. We can't gen up within ourselves a faith that claims righteousness. It is a gift of God. You see, if faith is a work, what do you do when you have doubts? If faith is a commandment to gain righteousness and you have doubts, then you are lost. You are right back under the law and not under grace. You are in bondage once again and you cannot live in peace before God. And I hope you see how living under works of any kind shakes our assurance in Christ. And God has given us assurance as a gift. Salvation must be through faith. That is, the, by faith as a means of receiving grace. Grace is freely given, and so faith freely receives. You know, Jesus gives us a picture of faith in, in Luke 18. He describes the tax collector in prayer. And the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He stood afar off from the altar, beating his breast, crying out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified. That is, declared righteous by God. You see, faith is a complete trusting. It is a casting of our life, it is a casting of all our cares into the hands of the Lord our God. It is relying entirely upon Jesus. Now we need to back up for a minute and consider. If God imputes righteousness to you, as it says in verse 5, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Where does the righteousness come from? It comes from Christ, who lived a righteous life in your place. In other words, in one sense, we are saved by works. Not our own works, we are saved by the works, the righteousness of Christ that God can then impute to us so it is accounted to us in God's sight. 
And if according to verse 8 of this verse, God will not impute your sin to you, where does your sin and guilt go? Well, they go to Christ, who died the death of sin in your place. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God in your place. Christ took on human flesh precisely so that he could die for human sin. See, without Christ, there would be no grace. There would be no cause for faith. Without Christ, God's wrath would remain. The center of our salvation in this life, and as we read in our confession, in Christ's exaltation for all time is Christ. His death, His life, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, in Christ alone. Now, to conclude, let me, let me just return to this issue of our relationship with God. 1 Timothy 1.5 Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, these are some of the most precious things that we can possess on this earth. A good conscience before God and a sincere faith. You see, this is the value of Christ's atonement. Jesus actually took your sins upon himself. He actually died in your place. He actually fully satisfied God's righteous judgment and so set aside God's wrath forever. <coughs> the point is, God did not just sweep your sin under the rug. He did not just say, well, okay, that doesn't really matter. We'll just let it go. You see, if that was the case, our conscience would still convict us. We would still be in the place of a guilty conscience and our shame demanding that we somehow earn a position in God's sight. And we all know in our heart, it is only by a complete satisfaction, by a full judgment on our sin that our conscience can be clear, that our faith can be sincere. You see, this is why it is so important. We cannot carry on a relationship of love to God if our conscience is bogged down by guilt. You see, any way that we attempt to find favor, to find a standing 
with God out of our own works, our conscience tells us there's no way you're going to accomplish this. There's no way that you can balance out and weigh up enough good works to offset the wickedness that is in your heart. And so the life of works is the life of bondage. It is the life of a guilty conscience. Now, think about your life for a moment. Are you afraid of being found out by God? Who sees all things? Do you want to hide from the searching light of the one who can see into every corner of your life? Who can see into every thought of your mind, every careless word, every hurt you have caused? Are you afraid to be exposed before your Creator? Are you still caught in the grip of guilt and shame, in bondage with no way out? The Gospel's prescription is this. Cast all your cares upon Jesus Christ. Trust in Him alone. Receive by faith the wonderful grace of God, which brings the gift of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that this is the work you will accomplish in our own hearts. That we might trust entirely upon you. Lord, that you might give us the faith that we might receive your grace fully. And that we might turn to you with sincere faith and with a pure conscience. And Lord, someday we know that we will be in your very presence to praise and to glorify you. And that is our heart's desire. Grant this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.